I've got with me today, Nick Allen. He's the director of the Center of Digital Mental Health, Digital Mental Health here at U of O. And we're going to talk on some interesting topics, the first of which is suicide. Everyone thinks to be, I mean, it's the second leading cause of death of men 16 to 25-ish. Um, and a lot of people would think that that's a current epidemic. But something that I've noticed looking into you is it actually peaked in the 90s. So I'm curious, are there any thoughts on is social media maybe less of a less of a cause and more of a symptom or or how does it play into mental health well the the trends with suicide actually are different in different places around the world so there's one of the big factors that influences um, the rates of suicide in a given country is the access to means by which we mean how easily you can access things that you can use to kill yourself. Absolutely. So, for example, there's been some really quite dramatic drops in some countries, like, for example, Russia and China, where uh, changes in access to alcohol, in alcohol Russia in particular. Even. That's yeah, a not, means. Well, no. Alcohol's not a means, but, but, but alcohol use is something that makes uh, attempting suicide much more likely. So when people are intoxicated, when they're drunk, Absolutely. they're much more likely, If even if they're already feeling very negative and suicidal, mm-hmm. then um, then drinking can potentiate that. It can make yes. it more likely to happen. And in China, there's been a big drop, as I understand, largely because of uh, regulations around toxic uh, uh, agricultural chemicals. And so, you know, if you lived in the rural areas of China, there was a period of time when you had very ready access to extremely poisonous substances that were sold basically for agricultural use. And since they've started regulating those a bit more, it, it has reduced the suicide rate. So really the one country in the world where the suicide rate tends seems to be going up at the moment is the United States. That brings it to an interesting place where suicide isn't a one-off necessarily event like if you're actually making actionable events to to kill yourself it tends to be a year-long progression of something like a thought pattern that gets worsened and worsened and worsened because everyone in their lifetime has Mm -hmm. experienced the thought of what if i jumped out this window right now it's the call of the void it's a very natural kind of occurrence to show you what would go wrong sure so is suicide when that keeps going further and further or what kind Mm -hmm. of starts that cycle so that's a, that's a big question that we're, we're trying to understand with research at the moment because one of the things that we know is that someone can be at risk for suicide for a very long time um, and yet not take any action. And so that's you know where the person is experiencing what we call suicidal ideation. So they're thinking about... Ideation, they're idealizing. Yes. Well, no, it's not idealizing. Ideation just means you have the ideas in your head. You know, you're yeah. thinking, oh... Maybe I'd be better off if I was dead. Maybe people would be better off without me. Maybe this is all too hard. Maybe it's never going to get better. What would be a good resource for those people? If, you, if, if anyone listening right now is kind of having those thoughts and mm-hmm. noticing them, what would be a good direction for them to kind of head down? Well, I think if you're, if you're experiencing those thoughts, but you're not feeling at the moment like you're going to act upon them, which is true f- for a good number of people, um, I would say getting some some professional help is a pretty good idea. That's an interesting point. I've yeah. on this show been moderately outspoken against therapists and SSRIs for various number of reasons. Mm-hmm. What do you think help would look like in an ideal world? <clears throat> well, I think it varies for each individual, but Absolutely. but I do think I do think that um, if you're if you're having persistent thoughts about 
wanting to kill yourself, that killing yourself might be a good idea, that it's something that you should consider, then I think professional help is one thing to consider carefully. Absolutely. The reason is because I think most uh, people who work in the mental health field are, are pretty skilled at helping people deal with these sorts of thoughts and teaching people methods that you can use to change those patterns of thinking. One now, of which is mindfulness, correct? Absolutely. Well, and mindfulness can be part of that. There's other sort of cognitive methods, so-called cognitive methods, which are about being able to change patterns of thinking. But the point is that the that, the, that this thinking pattern can be treated as a problem in and of itself without actually needing to be related to potential attempts. Really? Wait, so, someone, so sometimes yeah. people will say, well, I think I think like this all the time, you know, but um, but I would never do anything about it. Mm-hmm. So it's not a problem. And that's not true for a couple of reasons. First of all, if you're thinking like that, uh, it's probably having some effect on your mood and your functioning and your relationships and other things that are important in your life. So negative thinking, whether it's about suicide or about anything else, is going to be a psychological burden. It's something that's going to stop you from functioning the way you would like to function. So there's that. And the second thing is that you can't be sure that you're not going to get into a circumstance where those thoughts start to feel like something you should take action on. And a gun happens to be nearby. Exactly, and so this is this is this is this is it takes us back to the point we made before about alcohol. Mm-hmm. You know that there are there, one of the things we know is that when if people already have those risk factors, and they're affected by alcohol, and they have access to means means that like there's a gun nearby, that's a very toxic situation Absolutely. and one where you know your likelihood of taking action and trying to do something is much higher. So even though you may say to yourself in the you know, the bright sunshine in the middle of the day, oh, well, I have these thoughts, but I would never act upon them. Mm-hmm. I don't think anyone can be 100% sure that that's always going to be true for them. Absolutely. And so now having that as the backdrop, how does social media and digital health play digital? You know, you, you almost, you can clean up your room, but at some point you have to clean up your digital living space too. Like having a messy desk affects your mind just as much as having your desktop cluttered. Sure. Yeah, so I think, well, here's my general take on the role of social media in mental health, and this is that there's been a lot of effort. There's been a lot of efforts to discuss this issue in a very simplistic way, which is like social media is good, social media is bad. Yeah. You know, there's it's like um, it's it's a little bit like you know, is it nutritious or is it poisonous? You know, mm-hmm. and and in fact, social media is like any other kind of technology in that it has benefits and it has risks absolutely and so really this discussion about whether social media or any other digital technology is inherently good or bad misses the point that in fact it's like any technology where we have to understand what the risks are we have to understand what the benefits are and we then have to create systems around that where we maximize the benefits and minimize the risks so an obvious example would be motor cars now, if the only thing I was to say to you about automobiles was that people die when they're driving them, you would say, well, that's terrible. Let's get rid of these terrible things. I mean, people die in them. That's that's crazy that we should have such a thing. Yeah. But then I have to weigh that up and say, but oh, hang on, hang on. Not everybody dies. In fact, it's only a small proportion of people who die. And the rest of the people actually find them very useful and beneficial. 
So what we do is we try to create laws, we create systems of training, you know, driver education and licensing and so forth, which hopefully minimise those risks so that less people die and maximise the benefits people can get around. What would some of those laws look like in terms of social media? Some laws that you're maybe trying to push or even pet thoughts that you're like, that would kind of be good down the road. Yeah. So I think that I think that yeah, so I agree. This is this is I think the really important question. We have to we have to do more research to understand what the harms and what the benefits are. And I think at the moment, a lot of the research has been very simplistic and just talked about things like screen time. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, how much screen time, does screen time correlate with depression? And of course, screen time could be thousands of different things, Absolutely. depending on what you're doing with the screen. Could be Wikipedia or it could be horror movies. Yeah, that's right, exactly. It could be pornography or it could be reading the great works of literature. You could be doing anything in between. Absolutely. And so there's obviously gonna be a huge difference. It's almost like looking at just calories rather than well are those calories fast food or are they vegetables exactly exactly it's a great that's a great analogy let's pull that sucker in you can you, you can grab it and pull it closer yeah. but um yeah so that's a great analogy and so i think i think we need to understand what is the nutritious aspect of social media absolutely and what is the potentially fast food harmful you know aspect of social media and 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 then when we when we know that then i think we can set um uh, it's a as with any kind of human behavior it's a combination of education mm -hmm. and regulation i feel like right? education is the biggest component of that Helping. totally totally but then you also you know you need to have the carrot and the stick i think for Absolutely. many things if you want humans to change their behavior sometimes you need some laws or regulations to really to really push that but 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 i agree with you that the the big part is the education and explaining you know what the um uh, what the, what the what the dangers are, what the benefits are, and how you can maximise those benefits and minimise those dangers. You know, one sort of example I think about, and I'm sure both you and your listeners are probably aware by now that I'm originally from Australia, and so and so in Australia, one of the great successful public health campaigns has been around um, sun exposure and skin cancer. Oh, okay. Oh, because they have the UV hole right above them during summer, right? Yeah, it's it's changed a bit recently, but yes, nice. it, that, for a long time that was that was a big factor, and so the amount of UV you're getting, particularly in southern Australia, is much greater than most parts of the world, and it's a very hot, sunny place anyway. Yeah, and it's full of Europeans, like people who are originally from Europe, you yeah. know, with fair skin, and so they're and so they're not designed genetically to 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 deal with this amount evolution, of sun exposure. Evolution just works too slow to get them to where they need to be. Precisely. And so as a result, we had a very high rate of skin cancer. But my point is that there was a, there was a really concerted education process by which they were able to change attitudes towards being extremely tanned and, and, and so forth and lots of sun exposure. And, and then there's also some rules that they had about kids wearing hats at school mm. to reduce their sun exposure during developmentally sensitive periods. So I think, you know, if you look at something like that, then you think about social media a similar thing could apply. You know, you think about what are the developmentally sensitive periods? What are the periods of life where you want to be able to Whole limit <laughs> ex ex uh, people's exposure to it? Yeah. Uh, you know, and so well, maybe not limit exposure, limit exposure to the toxic parts of it. Like they totally. should be able to learn. You you can learn everything on YouTube now. Try to. But my personal rule is like, I don't watch horror movies. Anything toxic that goes in, then when you're alone at night, yeah, you have yeah. toxic thoughts, you know? Totally. So I think really using education to push like, hey, this is a way, what it really breaks down to is immediate gratification. Yeah. They want to be happy now. Yes. Um, and this is a small roundabout, but I've actually inadvertently broken down my um, my dopamine reward system through 
the use of Kratom um, oh, yeah. over the course of a couple of years now. And I didn't really notice it, yeah. but antagonizing opioid receptors over a long period of time, I don't really get rewarded by unhealthy eating or unhealthy internet use or anything, which is a strange thing. So I'm more uh, encouraged by the serotonin reward system. Like I'm looking for 10 and 15, 20 year Mm-hmm. games where, mm-hmm. where it'll make mm-hmm. my life uh, better further down the road. So we should almost be thinking about a way to change the the reward system of youth from immediate gratification to I want my life to look better when I'm 30. Yeah, sure. Well, I think that I think, you know, what we teach people as psychologists is, um, you know, we teach them to balance up those kinds of rewards. You should have a balance of short term fun hedonic rewards and some of those what we call sometimes difficult pleasure or mastery you know the things that you're doing that give you those long-term outcomes and you know it's not good to have too much of either you know if you if you're all about the short-term rewards then yes you you're, you're making short-term decisions you're not building for the future you're not doing the the things that are going to build your happiness and well-being in the future but if all you do is focus on those long-term rewards you're never having any fun you're going to get really ground down and so you know a healthy life consists of a balance of short-term and long-term rewards so there's nothing wrong with short-term rewards they've just got to be in balance with the others you said a really interesting thing there nothing is going to be fun but i mean you being having known of mindfulness anything can be fun even stubbing your toe if you if you just be the the loving watcher, kind of experiencing it, sure, everything can be an enjoyable experience. You know? Yes, now, that's true. Although that's a that's a that's a level of mindfulness a lot of people don't get to, and so I, I agree with you that there is that you know the people who have very experience with mindfulness and meditation who are able to dissenter from experiences like stubbing your toe and observe it and you know think about it in different ways. You know maybe it's funny, etc. That's 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 a very useful skill to have. It's kind of a superpower, but 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 it's not something that a lot of people. Well, first of all, people who haven't uh, engaged, heard in, yeah, heard about it or haven't engaged in mindfulness practice won't have it. But even those who are who are practicing mindfulness, many of them will say, you know, there are some experiences that that are just beyond my capacity to do that. I might be able to do that with an itch. You know, on the end of my nose, which is something that may happen regularly when I'm meditating. But not getting fired. But but yeah, but or like or my partner leaving me or something like that. Mm-hmm. If you want me to sit there and be mindful and decentered about that, forget it, you know. Well the opposite side of that is long term depressive depression of that through alcohol use and abuse and things such as that yeah which gets us to a really interesting topic that i've i've read a little bit that you've been working on which is depression yes. i'm curious that's a huge term yeah but i'm curious your thoughts on on it well that is a huge term and it's a big question because that's really been the focus of my career for about 30 years so let's get it depends where you want to start i mean have i think you ever experienced a depressive episode is that what gets you started in the in the line of work or it's a great question. I don't, I've wondered this myself. I've certainly experienced depression and feelings of depression, but then virtually all human beings have. So Absolutely. that doesn't make me unusual. I know I've had periods of feeling more down, um, uh, but I don't think I've experienced a depressive episode, like a clinical one, a one that clinical. would meet the, the, the clinical criteria. So that's not necessarily, I, if I, you know, my problems tend to be more in the anxious range than the depressive anxious. range. <laughs> I have some interesting thoughts on anxiety. But. Yeah. but anyway, to get back to depression, so so it's interesting, yeah, so I really started focusing on it even my, when I was in graduate school doing clinical psychology training. And um, I really liked working with people who are experiencing depression, which may sound a bit weird, but I, I, I found, uh, I think depression is a, 
is the way I think about it, it's the it's sort of the most quintessentially human problem. And the reason I say that is because it really involves all aspects of the human person. It involves your biology, it involves your relationships, it involves your sense of yourself and who you are, it involves the way you think about things, it involves, you know, like every aspect of human functioning experience is affected by depression. Absolutely. And there's also some aspects of depression that are sort of quintessentially human, that a lot of it has to do with uh what we psychologists call social cognition the way you think about yourself and the way you think about other people and the way you think about your value as a person it really deals fundamentally with that and that's a that's a really fundamental thing aspect of human psychology so so that's kind of that's kind of what got me into it i first i liked the clinical work working with people experiencing depression and how universal it is and i liked it it's a universal aspect of human experience and very all-embracing and so and and you know and a and a, a serious problem you know a lot of people uh, experience it. Um. Sorry. <laughs> Here, can I get you started on one specific route down this, and then if you have thoughts on it? So I haven't said it on the show, but I've been thinking a lot about depression, and some of it is a little. I got started with the works of Jim Carrey when he said. Uh, a depressed state, a deep rest. Because yes, life, yes, 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 all yes. animals go in, in cycles mm-hmm. of extreme sprints, and then you rest, you reassess, you That's look right. what you, how you could do it better. Exactly. So I think it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy where people see sadness portrayed in the media as a or depression as a sad thing, but really, it's a depressed state can almost just be a low energy. That's right. Um, That's exactly right. And in fact, this is this is precisely the way I think about it, 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 it especially in, in what you might call normal depression, the depression that everyone experiences. I think about it as a, it's a process of um, disengaging from an unproductive goal Oh. so that you can then withdraw your energy from that yeah. and then redirect the energy into something more productive. Okay. And that's and that's an important thing to do. So like a classic example is let's say you're in a relationship mm-hmm. and it's not working. You know, and, and you but you're really invested. You think this person's gorgeous and you just adore them you're and being, you and you want to make it work, but they're not it's not working. You know, like they are not giving you back what you yeah. need and you are feeling really undermined and attacked in this relationship and yet you want to make it work and so you hang in there and so you're overwhelmed with the sunk cost fallacy exactly (laughs) and so and so then the thing is when that when you make that decision or when the decision is made for you that that relationship is over you'll probably feel depressed there'll be some pain some psychological pain because what you're doing is it's painful to disconnect from that goal that thing that you were driving towards but then when if, if if it works the way it's meant to work, you know, evolutionarily, yeah. then then what will happen is over time the pain will recede. It's like grieving, and you'll find that you now have more energy to invest in something new, something that might be more productive, like maybe a new relationship, or maybe other kinds of friendships, or maybe whatever. A but career, a career. So, but but the point is, it's 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 dis, this process of disconnecting from an unproductive goal is normally a painful one. Especially because when you got into it, it most likely was the most productive goal you could imagine. Exactly. And then you have to realize that, you know, your past self wasn't making the best decisions or you were running off the information you knew. Exactly. Which is hard to regret this. And there's there's new information now. And sometimes, as you say, there's that sunk cost thing, you know, that you've put a lot of effort into something. So I think that 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 kind of model really explains 
for me, well, the the experience of depression that's pretty common that most people would have from time to time, uh, sadness and so forth. But I do think it's really important because what it does is it tells us that sadness and depression and low mood, it has a function. Mm-hmm. And very Absolutely. often we don't think about it having a function. We just think of it as this thing that we want to get rid of. And uh, I have this thought experiment I sometimes put to people and I say, you know, if I could give you a pill that would take away all your anxiety and you never experienced anxiety or fear, not even, not even when you needed to, mm-hmm. would you take that pill? And a lot of people would go, well, I'd like to not feel anxious, but, you know, if I had like something about to attack me or, you know, there was something bad going on, I'd probably should feel anxious you know i should have a fight flight response if you put the same question about a uh, about a pill that would cure you of sadness and depression mm. i think people would be people would be a lot more tempted to take it absolutely but part of the reason they would be tempted to take it but i would argue that if you did take it you'd be actually undermining an important part of your humanity Absolutely. And and yet the reason people are tempted to take it is because we don't have a good cultural understanding of the function of sadness and its value Absolutely. as an experience. And so I think that that's, that's really something I've been talking about for a long time is this idea that sadness and grieving and feelings of depression, like you said with that Jim Carrey example, they can be, it can be a productive and important process just because it's not comfortable doesn't yeah. mean it's not valuable. Having said that, there's also a form of depression, obviously, that some people experience, which is a... Treatment resistant. Yeah, which is sort of something that's kind of where that process is spun out of control, mm-hmm. you know, and it's gotten, it's developed a life of its own or however you want to describe it. And that's when people really do experience horrible pain that doesn't, there's no longer functional in any way. And that's where it could just be an imbalance of hypothetically neurotransmitters. It could be influenced by biological factors, whether it's neurotransmitters or... Uh, I, I want to cycle back to this, specifically involving sure. ketamine treatment, ketamine yeah, yeah. infusions. But for now, you you mentioned a pill that would never, that you never experienced depression. There's two ways to kind of look at, to take that out of an analogy into real life. One yeah. is you never go into deep rest, which is when you mm-hmm. fundamentally take amphetamines, Adderall every day. Mm-hmm. Your body never gets to, to go into deep rest. Totally. And then when you eventually get off, you're going to crash. It's going to be the biggest crash ever. The other one of that is SSRIs, which is you never get the the depressed sadness because you always have a bare minimum of serotonin pumping through you and hitting your transmitters. So I'm curious, do you think those hold value or do you think they're overprescribed or or what do you think, you know, where are we currently at with the prescription crisis? So, yeah, it's a great question because the... I think that I think that antidepressants are probably overprescribed. I don't think there's a lot of harm associated with it though. Really? Yeah, and I'll tell you why. Because the description that you just gave of SSRIs is not most people's experience. Most mm. people who take one of the reasons like if you just wanted to not feel pain Mm -hmm. if you want to feel happy or energetic or or comfortable all the time there are drugs that do that Mm -hmm. opiates uh, uh, (laughs) and stimulants like amphetamines and so forth so if you just want to feel um, energetic rather than flat then you can take amphetamines if you you may have misunderstood my understanding of SSRIs is it removes angst 
Well, it, it, see, this is the thing. So the serotonin, <laughs> I'm about to geek out about the serotonergic system. You're into it? Yeah, okay, all right. So here's the thing about serotonin. Serotonin is primarily a modulatory neurotransmitter. And what I mean by that is that it actually, its main function in the brain is in fact uh, moderating and smoothing out the 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 behavior of other neurotransmitter systems, like for example the dopamine system or the norepinephrine. If I have to remember, epinephrine and norepinephrine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it, the problem is where I come from. We say noradrenaline and adrenaline. Oh, yeah, That's absolutely. the British version, but here it's norepinephrine and epinephrine. Yeah, but anyway, the, so those systems are associated with, you know, more broadly speaking, the dopamine systems associated with reward seeking, and the epinephrine systems associated with um, response to threat and mm-hmm. fight to flight. More complicated than Rest that, but it's a general. Yeah. But, but nevertheless, they're both systems that are very linked to functional behaviour. Mm-hmm. The serotonergic system has some functions in, you know, controlling uh, things like wakefulness and alert alertness. My understanding is that controls almost every single experience of our lives. It does because it is um, so because because it be, but that's because it acts as like a volume knob on almost every other system. Nice. It's this system that actually modulates the behaviour of other systems. So. Here's the thing. It would be great if antidepressant medications like serotonin-specific reuptake inhibitors were worked that effectively that you could just take them and it would take away angst. Yeah. That's not most people's experience. No, that's why I'm against it. <laughs> some, people, some people do find it's very helpful mm-hmm. for dealing with those excesses of depression that we were talking about before. Mm-hmm. So not... I. I have not experienced in my clinical work with people that people when when they've been taking SSRIs and of course let me be clear as a psychologist I don't that's not my job I don't prescribe yeah. them that's done by the medical people but but I've, I've never worked with anyone who is on an SSRI who has complained about emotional flatness as the main symptom they complain about a lot of symptoms yeah they, they sometimes say it makes them feel a bit anxious initially. Sometimes they say that they have, you know, trouble with sleep or they have, you know, there's all sorts of things that people will experience, dry mouth, or that's more the older antidepressants. But very few people describe emotional flatness as a result of that medicine. So it, it, is, it is a medicine that tends to, um, for some people, not for everyone, for maybe about two-thirds of people, it seems to be helpful if you're experiencing a serious depression Okay. To, to take the edge off that serious depression. If you've got a mild to moderate depression, mm-hmm. in general, it works about as well as placebo. Yes, that's what so, I mean. So, yeah, so in fact, there's no evidence that it's particularly effective for people who are experiencing mild to moderate depression or even everyday sadness. Well, here's how I just had described to me um, off the works of Johan Hari. He talked about mm-hmm. the depression scales like 1 to 51 or 1 to 151 or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Um, and anyways, so getting on a regular sleep schedule, getting eight hours of sleep mm-hmm. every day mm-hmm. um, bumps you. So one is you're ecstatic. You have all the serotonin in the world. 151 is you're acutely suicidal or mm-hmm. whatever the highest number is. Uh, sleep moves you about up six Mm-hmm. If you actually start sleeping regularly, and SSRIs only move you up about two. Yeah. So yeah, if you're at 151, getting on SSRIs will move you away from being acutely suicidal. But right. I mean, at what cost? Because they, I mean, the majority of mass shootings are people getting off antipsychotic drugs. The majority? I, you know what? I could be parroting something I heard, <laughs> but didn't look into there. 
Yeah. Well, that's an issue. We're having a wide-raising discussion here, so I don't. I hope if, you, if you're happy to go and talk about mass shootings, that's an interesting question and very apropos. Do you want to do you want to bring back around to it? I want to talk on serotonin. Okay, for a let's while stick here. with let's stick with serotonin. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to talk to you about mass let's, shootings let's and the role this, of get this because you can just move it. I just need it to stay as close as you can. Role of mental health um, in in mass shootings is very interesting. But okay, let's go back to serotonin. So, I think that I think that one of the interesting things about the about the serotonergic drugs is that now I'm far I, let me just be clear they are not a panacea cool. and in a way uh, that's that's <laughs> the thing that means that they they don't have a lot of problems is the same thing that means they're not as they're powerful. not as powerful as yeah. they could be absolutely right? so they they work in a relatively subtle way, as you probably know. They, they most of them don't develop any therapeutic effects for a couple of weeks. So, in fact, you can start taking serotonin-specific reuptake inhibitors, and really for a few weeks or more, you won't necessarily experience any therapeutic effects. That is a reduction in your depression yep. or your anxiety. And that's a bit of a bummer because you often experience. Uh, side effects straight away mm. so when you start taking those medicines you're already feeling pretty terrible you start taking them you get some side effects so they're annoying and you're not and you've got to hang in there for a couple of weeks and if someone's feeling depressed hanging in there is exactly one of the things you're not good at because it's it's hard to do and it involves having hope that something's going to work in the future and depression mm. is all about not having hope well right? you know what if you if you put out that hope and deal with the current maybe you're starting mind spaces that in two weeks kind of manifest into oh absolutely life. and in fact that's where you know there's 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 a fascinating line of research on the biological effect of placebos mm -hmm. and one of the things we know about placebos so even if you're taking they a medicine work. that has not they do work <laughs> and in fact one of the difficulties in in uh, research on antidepressant medicines is is the fact that the placebo effect in depression is so strong mm -hmm. because when you give someone with depression hope that's a very powerful thing powerful even thing. if it's just in the form of a pill that actually does nothing pharmacological mm -hmm. but it says hey you you know we've got something here for you that might be helpful yeah. because very often that placebo is given in a you know in a context like a clinical trial where you don't know if you're on the real medicine or not so so i so i think that uh like i say I, they're not a panacea i think we one of the things we do know about ssris is that they're pretty they don't have a lot of harms compared to most. I mean, all medicines. Don't get me wrong. Every medicine has side effects, and every medicine has has um, has potential toxicity. In, you know, otherwise, it wouldn't be a medicine, right? Absolutely. Um, just like anything you take into Everything, your body. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, but as as things go, it's really when you think about the number of people who've taken it taken those medicines over the years and the broad and the, the number of ways they've been prescribed one of the things we do know is they're pretty safe as okay. these things go yeah you know not like not like i say not perfect but they're, yeah. they're pretty safe um and so I, I think that you know the way i look at ssris is that i yes i think they're over prescribed because i think they're given to a lot of people who the evidence tells us they won't be very helpful with. Well, they need to fix their fundamentals of eating and sleep and you know, breathing right. Totally, first. totally. And yes, and there's a lot of lifestyle factors, how they deal with stress, coping skills, all that sort of stuff that'll probably give them, first of all, much more benefit. Yep. And secondly, much more long-term benefit mm -hmm. than, than taking a medication will. However, having said that, I think there is a, a group of people 
with more moderate to severe clinical depression. Mm -hmm. And I think we do have pretty good evidence at this point that around about two-thirds of them, plus or minus a bit, will get some benefit. Now, a certain proportion of that is probably a placebo effect. Mm -hmm. But I think there's good enough evidence now to say that probably antidepressants are working a little bit better than placebo. Not spectacularly better, but a bit better. And if you're feeling pretty terrible, if you're experiencing a depression and you just can't get through the day, yeah. If something even just takes the edge off, mm-hmm. and get, and so and very often that taking the edge off is what gives you the ability, ability to, to actually make those other changes you talked like about: it. improve your sleep, fix up your relationship problems, manage your stress better, you know, eat better, etc. All those other things that are very powerful and I that should it. be done. If that medicine gives you that little bit more control, it's worth it. But yeah, but they shouldn't be given... You say it's worth it, but in the current state, even if less than one-tenth of one percent does get homicidal or suicidal actions when they come off, if one-sixth of Americans are on antipsychotic drugs, that's... Give, that's throwing out the baby with the bathwater. That's a bad analogy for there, but you know what I mean. Like, well, let me let me let me get technical with you here. You're yeah. using the term antipsychotic, which is a very different kind of medicine to an antidepressant. Is, isn't it like uh, SSRIs are antipsychotics, but not all antipsychotics are SSRIs? No. Nope. Oh, okay. I was okay. mistaken. So, uh, antipsychotic is a group of medicines that deal with psychotic experiences, things like delusions, hallucinations, things you see in schizophrenia and maybe in bipolar disorder and things like that. Yeah. So those medicines, there's... Which is heavily serotonin-based. Uh, yes, some of them influence serotonin. A lot of them, are, uh, the, the, the most common mechanism of those me- me- medicines is on dopamine. Really? Yes. I would not have, like Lexapro and stuff? No, that's an SSRI. Yeah, that's, a Lex- that's, a, that's an SSRI. Okay, because so schizophrenia is an over, like just uh, too many alpha brain waves and too much serotonin, correct? Well, it, <laughs> we're getting way we're getting way away from here. Yeah. On schizophrenia, let me just say, schizophrenia yeah. is a complex Absolutely. condition that doesn't lend itself to any simple description of its mechanisms. Yeah. Uh, so there, we do have a pretty good sense that there's some um, that the, the neurochemistry is involved, mm-hmm. along with genetics, along with life experiences, along with a whole bunch of things. The neurochemicals that are involved undoubtedly include serotonin, but the one that has been most commonly uh, talked about in the context of schizophrenia is dopamine. So, and so, and and so, this overactive dopamine. Mm -hmm. So, and so, what uh, what the um, what the medicines do is they inhibit the dopaminergic system. To get into pharmacokinetics, and I'm going to phrase this in a way that unless people make a deep dive, they won't be able to make the association. Right. Instead of these um, Band-Aid approaches of selectively uh, making it so you can't reuptake things, do you have any thoughts on agonizing the 5-HT2A receptor through various methods? So this is, now you're on to ketamine? No, that's yeah, not ketamine. What, 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 so, no, um, that's NMDA. Now, I should point out, I'm not a... You need to talk to a psychopharmacologist, and that's not me. That. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking but, more but, of classical psychedelics in terms of uh, um, upregulating like the serotonergic system to help with things like depression long-term. Yeah. Well, that's... that's Yeah. So, that's interesting. So, the... Um, it's interesting that there is a range of uh, psychological experiences that can be induced through various methods. One would be psychedelics. Wim Hof method, kundalini yoga. Yep, yoga, meditation, uh, 
uh, repetitive drumming. Uh, uh, Near-death experiences too. Possibly. Uh, runners, high. runners high. Yeah, there's a lot of these different ex- – and, and, and at, at the level of consciousness, mm-hmm. these experiences have some very similar properties. Absolutely. Uh, so they have this kind of what Kessler called the oceanic feeling, you know, the idea of being sort of like – connected to yep. uh tuned into the universal tuned into the exactly you feel connected rather than disconnected Love it. right and you feel and and often and so if you think about psychedelics then part of the experience is you know that the perceptions start to bleed into each other so you know sounds have color and you know and things can move together and you know textual you know change so your perceptions are being so one way of thinking about this is that um we have this dimension of consciousness, right? And at one end, we have this extreme of being connected and there being no boundaries mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and it being very creative. And, um, and that's, what a lot, that's kind of what a lot of people describe when they talk about these peak experiences associated with psychedelics, with meditation, with runner's eye. Fasting. All the, uh, fasting, yeah, all these things you yeah, mentioned, right? And another thing that all of those experiences have in common is that they are in many contexts, antidepressive. Absolutely, right? long so, term. Yes, so, 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 yeah, so they can have an antidepressive effect and there's fascinating research being done now on LSD. By maps, and, 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 and you have a different kind of maps going on. I'll yeah, 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 touch yeah. on that later. Yeah. yeah, but the question, the thing I want to get to is what's the opposite of that state of consciousness? The opposite of that, well, well, <laughs> well the, no, the opposite of that state of consciousness, I would argue is something like depression. What happens in depression is that is that you feel disconnected, mm-hmm. you feel um, you feel alone, you feel like everything. You feel rigid. Your mind is very rigid, like it gets stuck on a particular track and it yeah. can't get off. Whereas when you're in those other sort of broader experiences, like your mind's going Manic, everywhere, mania. you know, it's going multiple it's like controlled directions. Mania. E- exactly. And so the so the point is that I think there's some interesting insights here about this dimension of consciousness, which obviously does have a biology and a it pharmacology exists. that it underlines it. Yeah. And you can produce these states of consciousness, whether it be through through pharmacology. Or whether it be through behaviour like meditation, runners high, etc., which give you this experience of being connected and one with everything, and you know so forth, which and also which is very p- profoundly antidepressive. Absolutely. And then you have this other end of um, uh, experience where you feel alone, rigid, stuck. Uh, concrete, you know, like, you know, just stuck in your own mind with thoughts that just go over and over. And, and that's pretty much what depression is. And so I think that there is, there, there, that's, I think it's not surprising that some of the new developments in the treatment of depression actually utilize uh, psychedelic medication, which includes things like ketamine, but also LSD and psilocybin. Ketamine is a disassociative, I believe. Yeah. But it has, it still has, there is, there is aspects of the state of consciousness associated with, you know, when people yes. use it recreationally, for want of a better word, yeah. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a street drug as well, um, uh, as well as being a horse tranquilizer and other things. Um, but recently they've found this interesting effect on, um, on depression, uh, which unlike the other antidepressants we've been talking about is actually... Um, uh, is actually rapid acting. Okay. Uh, so one of the differences between ketamine, say, and SSRIs is that when it works, mm-hmm. you'll get a very rapid uh, reduction in depression, 
but it will go away over time. Does it really? Yeah, oh, over, I and, and I mean over days, okay. uh, typically, after the initial treatment. Whereas with SSRIs, you've got this very slow react, slow antidepressant effect. Mm-hmm. It takes weeks to kick in. Yeah. When it does kick in, if you stay on the medicine, it, it, it tends to last at least for a number of months, if not longer. I like it. Um, so, the longest-term games that I've been playing along the serotonergic system, because when you said depression is the opposite of mania or uh, a, a state of true consciousness, being conscious, mm-hmm. um, I would almost say that that's perpetuating the self-fulfilling prophecy of people seeing a very necessary state in their life as something that's not beneficial. Because I, as someone who enjoys entheogens a couple hundred times a year, mm-hmm. I experience quite a few deep rest periods mm-hmm. in my day, week, mm-hmm. life, where. Mm-hmm. I just lay down, but but you can still be conscious and uh, mindful during those times, you know. So I think. Well, I think the I think the issue is that you have to be able to be flexible. Yes. So in other words, as as nice as it is to be sort of like you know high and 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 connected and feeling yeah. oceanic, you don't want to be like that all the time because no. there are some tasks mm-hmm. for which that is not a good Mundane way to tasks. be. Exactly, like just. Writing, <laughs> fix it. Writing, fixing the car, whatever it is, make, making sense. You know, like so. There's, there's. So if you want to be like connected and creative and and expansive, yes. And some tasks are good for that. If you're going to paint a painting or or create something new, that's a great way to be. But there are also times in life when we need to be concrete mm-hmm. and 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 focused and rigid and so forth. And so the the real mental health, if you ask me, is to be able to move. Uh, between these states, I like it. in a in a in a flexible way that is responsive to the environment that you find yourself in, or the tasks that you have to do. The the problem comes when you get stuck. Yes. Like you know, someone who's stuck in the state of oceanic awareness is probably in some ways just as dysfunctional as someone who's stuck in the kind of repetitive, concrete world of the depressive. Absolutely. Um, and so we need both of those things. So when I say that there's that's other end is depression, I don't mean to suggest that that's not an important state of mind. Sometimes pessimism is important. Pessimism, uh, even. Yeah. Well, like I say, they, let's go back to that thing we were talking about before if you're in a bad relationship mm-hmm. and you're stuck in it and oh, you are uh, you are point. being optimistic about something that's actually bad for you yep. then you need some pessimism Absolutely. you need a dose of pessimism to say you know this isn't going to work and i need to let go and i need to give it up and then but you don't want to get stuck with pessimism you want to then say okay i'm now pessimistic about that relationship i withdraw my energy from it mm-hmm. as painful as that may be but that then releases that energy to go to something that's much more uh, productive and profound for me. I like that that word that you said they're stuck because I think that's where a lot of people are today. And I think the current system, it's so easy to say society, man, but like <laughs> the current system is one that doesn't really set up people to be happy and healthy, wealthy because it's harder to sell things to people who don't need anything. Totally. You know, so I'm curious, do you think that the um, Pfizer and all these big farmers actually do want people to be happy and healthy? Or do you think they are perpetuating a system where people are better consumers. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah, that is a lot. I mean, I, I, I'm not, person- not pessimistic on that. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm an optimist by nature. Nice. Uh, but, um, and, I, and I tend to think if you think something's a conspiracy or a screw-up, it's usually a screw-up in my experience. So, um, so, for example, if you get to the big pharma companies, you know, their, their behavior is not complex or conspiratorial. 
They want to make money, and that means they want to sell a lot of their medicine. And sometimes when they behave badly, which they do on occasions, uh, it's because of that motive. It's not because they're involved in some, in my opinion, in some in some grand scheme to 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 create uh, you know robotic like consumers or something like that. I think that they that they just they have a medicine. They've put a lot of money into it. They want to make money out of it. They're gaming the current system. That's they're gaming the current system. And and you know and and many of the medicines that they make are incredibly helpful. I mean there is, you know, none of us would want to go back to the time when people died as children from the lack of five cents worth of medicine, you know, and that that is literally what used to happen. Well, you get it to an interesting point of we didn't really even know serotonin existed before the 50s and it wasn't really public knowledge before the 70s. So mm-hmm. did people, were people, people weren't being diagnosed as schizophrenic, bipolar, all these things in the 40s. And I don't know, you don't really hear a lot of, of quotes of people exhibiting those symptoms, even though they didn't call it that. So I think people starting to feel a certain way, like, oh man, I have some highs and lows. And then they see other, they don't have any positive role models that are bipolar. And they go to the doctor and the doctor Mm -hmm. says, oh, you're bipolar. And then it's just this thing where they're like, oh, I guess this is how I bipolar. It's like this this thing that kind of got rolling and now it's getting so big where just because a doctor tells you you are something doesn't change your life. No, it doesn't. And I I think that, I, I do think, yeah. So, okay, lot there. Um, so, what you're talking about is the question of whether you know, in mental health, we've medicalized or or pathologized uh, aspects of experience that are not really pathological, that are just sort of, you know, variations yes. in, in the human experience that shouldn't be pathologized. And I think that that's so let's break down the word pathologist. I don't really know what it means. I'm sure some of my listeners would like to know too. Yeah. Well, pathology pathology is just. Uh, the, literally in Latin, it means study of illness. I think, oh, and okay. so and so when you're pathologizing, you're taking something and making it into an illness, making it into a disorder. Uh, okay, right. Cool. So I like that word. So if you're so you know, for example, it, uh, this is where I thought you were going with the example of bipolar disorder. You know, maybe there is some aspects of people who just have strong feelings. You know, where they mm-hmm. cycle between you know very high um, elated emotions and very low sad emotions that that there's a that there's a um there's a pathologizing of that making it into an illness mm-hmm. putting it in a box and saying this is now something the medical system should deal with and then of course then someone invents a drug and uh and they make some money off it and so yeah. here we go we've got this you know situation where we've made something pathological and now it can be monetized um now i you know once again i've already said i'm not i'm not a I'm not a natural conspiracy theorist, but but you know I I don't think I think what that misses. Here, let me put it this way: I think what that misses is this. There is there is truth in the idea that 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 all of medicine and particularly psychiatry and and the study of mental health has to be very thoughtful and careful about this issue of pathologizing normal experience. Absolutely. So I think it's a it's a it's an issue that we as a field should be thinking about carefully and being very watchful about. However, I think suggesting that all of the diagnoses, for example, of bipolar disorder, all of the diagnoses of schizophrenia are uh, are examples of that, I think really uh, invalidates the very high degree of pain and dysfunction that people with those disorders often experience and the relief and function that they get from getting the right intervention or treatment. 
So you've talked about the 40s and the 50s. I mean, the fact is before the advent of antipsychotic medication, which is the stuff to treat schizophrenia and bipolar, these, the psychiatric hospitals were basically jails for life. People would go into them and be locked away. You know, people who had had, uh, schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, they would be treated terribly, uh, especially if you go back to the to the eight, uh, 19th century and so mm. forth. And, um, and there was really no hope of them ever getting better. In fact, one of the first uh, wor- uh, terms, medical terms for schizophrenia was dementia praecox, which is, which is a... Uh, praecox, uh, yeah. I mean? Uh, I'd have to look it up, but, but the idea was that it would, the, the, the critical word I want... Yeah, it was remember. dementia. <laughs> yeah, it was dementia, because yeah. the idea is it was a dementia, the idea being it was a brain disease that was, that was progressive mm-hmm. and that you were never going to recover from. Yeah. And, of course, now we know that that's not true, mm-hmm. that, in fact, many... And, and when, and when, the, um, uh, when anti-de- antipsychotic medication was introduced, uh, the number of people who had to be put into those institutional settings and kept there for life dropped dramatically. Now, once again, not a wonder drug, not without its problems Absolutely. and needs to be thought about carefully, but but the effect of people who experience otherwise would have experienced these distressing thoughts where they maybe believe the devil was out to get them and they, they you know, they you know their world was full of fear and anxiety and about things that um, that, that were not real. And now they have you the opportunity. You say not real, but there can be an argument made for it. Okay, I, <laughs> I, get, I get the solipsistic argument, argument that like if it's if it's in my head, then it's real to me. Not right? even that argument. You go back a couple hundred years ago, and if I told you there is these little microscopic things that you can't even see, and they're trying to kill you, mm-hmm. you'd be like, "You're crazy, man." And that's right. what they told the doctor who invented it. Totally. And so now there's people saying, "Hey, there are there is energy." out there that has malicious and benevolent things and maybe that's what's controlling people uh, keeping going the military industrial complex or making benevolent people such as you whereas your consciousness is more tuned in to the benevolent or malevolent ones so totally. maybe those people are just more sensitive to that energy uh Receptive. It's, it's possible and uh I mean, you can't say for sure obviously no and but but so the, so then the question becomes how do we make the distinction between someone who may be raising an important experience or idea that we're not taking account of versus someone who is maybe experiencing, because of a, a, a problem with the way their brain functions, mm-hmm. a distortion of reality Absolutely. that is actually pretty much ruining their life? I'd you know, say like that's it's the benevolent. I say the malevolent, or the that would be malevolent. The benevolent one would be if it's actionable and based in 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 reality. Yes. If you say holy cow, I realize that all I have in this life is my time and energy, and I want to use it. How do people How do people find meaning and time in their life? They help other people. Yeah, sure. How do I want to use my time and energy to help other people so that I feel good or whatever? I don't know what people want on their deathbed, but I, my kind of rough idea of it is that it's a momentum thing. Yeah. So when you die, it's your, your momentum that whatever you build during this lifetime mm-hmm. gets to keep mm-hmm. going. I agree. So maybe if people are pretty in tune, whether it's through runner's highs or these different things, yeah. if they're receiving downloads, which is a very common occurrence, 
I think those those almost schizophrenic states, but schizophrenia is probably I don't know. We're getting we're well. Getting let, let me. Here. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I think that this is the point. Like most things in life, we need, unfortunately, to approach them with quite a degree of nuance. Absolutely, there's not simple black and white answers. So, so you're right. We need to be open to the fact that 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 people who have unusual ideas may be actually uh, perceiving something important that the rest of us aren't perceiving, etc. But then we've also got a situation like this. Let's say someone is um, is confined to their house, terrified, because they are certain that the KGB is poisoning the water that's coming into their house and is surrounding their house uh, with some kind of uh, uh, malevolent force field that is going to be destructive to them. And so they're spending their time now disconnected, frightened, uh, living in a world of, of these ideas which, you know, so you get my point. Yeah, absolutely. That the, 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 there, is, there is a difference between someone who is expanding their consciousness coming up with a different way of thinking about something and and versus someone who is um, someone who is really suffering an incredible burden in terms of their their well-being and their functioning in life because of a set of ideas that yeah we could get all philosophical about it but you know essentially it's not true that the KGB is poisoning this person's water and that they're surrounding the house and hiding in the bushes Absolutely. so you know so you have this person who's living their life on the basis of false beliefs um, and uh, and you know and suffering because of it, so I don't care if someone has a false belief that doesn't cause them to suffer. Mm-hmm. Really, that's religion. You know, that, to, yeah, you know, like all, even if I was religious, and I'm not personally very religious, but even if I was religious, there'd be another form of religion mm-hmm. that I thought was wrong, right? Yeah. And so and so clearly, there's people who you know have certain religious beliefs that that I think are untrue, but. That's that's fine. I, I have no desire whatsoever to argue with them or change their mind or tell them they're wrong or anything right. like that, because because if it's if it's making them more compassionate, more connected, more happy, great. Yeah, that's fantastic. But 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 that's not true of all of these beliefs, you know. And sure. and 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 often when the beliefs become more rigid, more concrete, violent, more violent or whatever, then then the then the impact on the person becomes much more negative. Absolutely. You said an yeah. interesting word that I love people saying is argue. And you said that's not something I'd argue. What is a thing that you'd argue? For example, um, some people on the left will argue for social social issues and people, environmentalists will uh, argue for, do you have to go? I do. All right. Um, yeah. do, what's, what's a very strongly held belief of yours that you'd argue for? Like what, what, what would be your closing thoughts if you have any? Okay. Um, Wow, that's a big question. That's a Tiger. big question. You've been spending thirty years <laughs> under pressure. We didn't even get to most of them. Could we do this again sometime? Totally, absolutely. Yeah. Happy to, happy to, because yeah, there's a lot to cover here. Um, so, I think the thing that has probably underpinned my work in mental health, and uh, the thing that has come through over and over and over again in the research that I've done, in the clinical work that I've done, working with people who are experiencing mental health difficulties, but also just in my life and my friends and my family and all these other things, is that is the, is the critical importance of human relationships. And that's, been, that's just been something that has 
that now at the age of 56 really looms large for me. Not in my own experience, yes, but also in all of those other things I mentioned in the research, in the clinical work, et cetera. And so I think that, I think that you know, if, if I think the great challenge for our community, for our society, is how do we build a society where we structure it so that we encourage the best kind of relationships, Connection. connections, Connection exactly, people. between people, and where we try to reduce the um, the barriers, the loneliness, the disconnection, the isolation, yeah. which can occur from an individual to society, but can also occur between groups within society. And so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm still a bit of an old hippie, I guess, but I, I just think, you know, ultimately we've got to be able to connect and engage and talk to each other and build relationships and understanding. Because one of the interesting things that happens when you do clinical work is that you start to realize that most people can be understood if you spend time with them and, and, and approach them with that openness. Meet them where they are. Exactly. And that's not, there's probably, so, there's probably some limits to that, but Absolutely. not a lot, not a lot. You know, most people can be understood if you take the time to listen and hear about their experience. And I think at the moment we're suffering from a lot of situations where that doesn't happen. We don't want to start on politics right now, but no. that's that's this clearly is my only a, non-political th- th- podcast. This is the, this is a, this, that's clearly a big feature of, of what's happening in the in well, our society. Yeah, and do you have like a couple more minutes? You have to go right now. I'm fine. I've got someone calling me. I, I will. Re- that's fine. I'll return. Yeah, I'll return that. You can edit this out, right? Um, yeah, yeah, maybe not. Yeah. I mean, people can now. I mean, okay. I, like, I like not editing because then I can change what you say, which is a very yeah, sketchy yeah. place to be. Totally. Um, my thoughts on that are society currently tries to separate us like the way it tells you and i assume if you have kids is you're a failure if you go back and spend time with your parents whereas for all of society we've evolved to be around our family totally and now that we're like it's trying to separate us more and more don't be don't be with your family and don't be with these people and it's putting people in a place where when you are at a really low depressive state and you just need someone Mm -hmm. to talk to to Mm -hmm. empathize with which i have some interesting thoughts on empathy but you don't have any yeah. And I think no, I, I, this, we don't have time, but I would love to talk to you about this more because I think that that is, that is absolutely part of modern society, that we're encouraging this disconnection. Love it. And, and I think that when you talk about things like depression, depression is a, is a signal to others that I need ah. help. And if you don't have others who are hearing that signal, yep. then you're in trouble. Love it. Because that, then you're shouting into a void. Right. So anyway... We should talk about that. I'm pumped. Um, this, is, this is just a teaser for a longer episode that we'll do when we set aside more time. Thank you, everyone. Um, tune in. I'll have eight weeks coming or eight episodes coming out day after day for the following week. Um, do you have any? Do you want to pitch your social media or where people can reach out to you, follow your work? Uh, sure. I'm at the University of Oregon. I'm at, at on Twitter. I'm at Professor underscore Nick underscore Allen. Love it. So follow you can find him. me there. Cite him. <laughs> All right. Take care, everyone. Bye. Bye.